ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's not Nanamaskuri, but it is Greek music. We can call it that. However, if Australia wants a free trade deal with the EU, it looks as if our producers of a certain salty white cheese made from sheep's milk will have to stop calling it feta. Why this is, what's at stake, we will get to. Hello, this is The Money. I'm Richard Aidy. Let's start with the mortgage cliff. A lot of Australian property buyers entered into fixed interest rate loans in 2020 and 2021 when interest rates were very low. They're coming off them now. Interest rates are significantly higher and the costs of repayments are much higher. Eliza Owens, the head of Research Australia at CoreLogic. Eliza, we've been hearing a lot about the mortgage cliff. Isn't it more of a wave? Yeah, that's right. We've seen the people transitioning from fixed to variable rates uh, kind of scattered throughout the year. The fixed rates across Australia started falling um, through late 2020 and bottomed out in uh, mid-2021. So it's really anyone that that took advantage of those falling fixed rates during that time uh, that, that are now making that transition. And where are we in that in that wave? Um, we're probably getting to the bulk of it for 2023. The RBA estimates that there were 880,000 loan facilities expiring this year. There were a greater portion expiring in the second half of this year. And then after that, it drops to 460,000 expiries in 2024. But we could be about to see a, a pretty heavy chunk of it. I saw something in the Australian the other day, $95 billion worth of refinancing in the next three months alone. That sounds about right. If you consider that we're sort of well into the second half of the year, there's a slightly greater portion expiring in in the later months of this year. But I mean, remember, that's in the context of over a million home loans that are going through this transition. And in the context of around a third of households in Australia, our our 10 million odd households being mortgaged as well. So when you look at it in the context of the broader mortgage market, it's actually a relatively small portion. And I think that's why at an aggregate level, the mortgage numbers still look fairly stable in terms of the portion of home loans that are in arrears or are starting to see late payments. And Eliza, you've pointed out something that I think has been slightly easy to forget, that most of the mortgage debt that we have has already been subject to higher interest rates. Yeah, that's right. So when we started writing about the concept of of the fixed rate cliff in the beginning of this year, around 70% of outstanding mortgage debt was on variable terms anyway. So as as we've progressed, more and more of that is, is converting to variable. So most mortgaged households have already been exposed to rising rates. And if you look at official data, say from APRA, that is reported to March this year, they've shown a very small portion, less than 2% of outstanding housing debt was late, whether it was you know between 30 and, and 90 days or more. So again, the aggregate 
figures look fairly stable. It sounds like we've been doing not too badly. I saw something the other day uh, from at least two of the big banks, ANZ and NAB, saying that the number of home loan customers missing repayments has remained uh, below pre-COVID levels. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And there's always going to be a lag with this kind of data, right? Because being in arrears, you have to have been 90 days late on your repayment. So if households are feeling the stress over the next three months, for example, as they make their transition from fixed to variable home loans, it wouldn't be until the end of the year or early next year that we would see arrears pop up in official data. Another thing to consider is that for people who, you know, they can see that transition on the horizon, it's possible that they're taking action now before they're in a situation where the bank has to take back your house to get themselves out of serviceability issues. So that basically means people might be deciding to sell um, before their serviceability issues get really bad. And we've started to see some suggestions of that in data. There's a higher portion of sales that are happening within a relatively quick period, people holding their property for two or three years or less. Uh, Some of them are even willing to make a loss on those resales in order to just offload the property. We're also seeing a relatively high portion of sales are investment properties. That's historically made up about 25% of new listings coming to market. Now it's sitting at about a third. So what that tells us is that owner-occupier selling decisions are, are dropping off, but investor selling decisions have remained quite stable. And that suggests to me that when people have some tough decisions to make around property ownership and and interest costs, they're more likely to offload an investment property first before needing to do anything about the roof over their own head necessarily. The other thing uh, that people can do, and and I, I guess a lot of people are doing it, is changing their terms. So pushing out how long it's going to take them to pay off the loan or some people may be going to interest only. Potentially. Uh, I have heard that some banks are offering this. At the end of the day, if you are worried about the state of your home loan or your ability to repay your home loan, it's much better to engage with your lender earlier on and see what your options are. Sometimes they'll be able to be flexible with terms. Other times they may just say, look, you need to sell. Another unusual trend that we've seen in the data is that for July, new listings nationally have gone up about 4% from the end of June. And that's quite strange. Uh, Usually, you would consistently see listings decline through July because of the seasonal winter slowdown. Mm. So, an out-of-seasonal rise in new listings also suggests to us, well, maybe there is some more motivated selling going on, and that could relate to some of the decision-making around serviceability. But at the end of the day, without knowing why people are are selling, you, you can't really confirm it. No, indeed. And the other thing, of course, is the effect of all this is cumulative. So you might have thought to yourself last April, perhaps, a few months ago now, okay, things are going up. It's a bit tighter at my place, but things have gone up more since. And the effect of that is going to play out the more it goes up and the longer you have to keep finding that money. Yeah, that's right. And I think you can see it in so much of the economic data now is that 
households are starting to feel the pinch of higher mortgage costs. And I think a big part of that has contributed to the rapid decline in inflation that we saw in the June quarter. So increasing the cost of housing, like increasing deposit rates and and constricting business activity, it's all a part of the plan to curb inflation. And you would imagine that households might cut back on their discretionary spending and dedicate more of their income or housing payments towards interest before it gets to the point where they're really desperately behind on their mortgage and needing to sell. One of the issues with this whole tool, of course, of pushing up the base rate so that interest rates go up and it tightens everything, and and especially we feel it in housing, is that there's no instant feedback for the RBA. This is something that takes a while. How long might we need to see before we get the full impact? Yeah, that's a great question. So for some banks, there is a two-month lag, uh, others more a three-month lag between a change in the cash rate and a change in mortgage rates. So it's likely that we haven't even seen the full effect of rate hikes being passed on to mortgage holders just yet. Each of the major banks is forecasting that the cash rate could start to come down in the second half of 2024. We're starting to get some forecasters saying that the cash rate is potentially at a peak. But I think depending on how quickly inflation unwinds, households have a while to go with servicing these higher mortgage costs. Well, it'll be a watch this space situation. Eliza, thank you very much for finding the time for us to come on the money. Of course. Thanks for having me. Eliza Owen from CoreLogic. Australia's been negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU. Talks have currently broken down, though we are about to try again this month. One of the sticking points is agriculture, specifically us getting greater access to the massive European market. Steve Greenland from Charles Darwin University says within this sticking point, there's a particularly sticky and pointy bit. We have these things called geographical indications, and those are the those are the product names that are linked to the kind of cultural origin of a wide range of products. So things like, say, feta cheese in Greece, only Greek producers are able to call their feta cheese feta. The other one that, that immediately comes to mind is Prosecco, of which I'm an enthusiastic consumer, but I understand this is at the heart of the dispute. There's over 3,500 product names that have got these um, geographic indication regulations. So if you're an Italian producer, not only can you not use names like Prosecco, but other well-known products like Mortadella, Grappa, Gorgonzola, etc., etc. There's actually a huge range of names that our Australian producers would no longer be able to use. There's tourism associated with some of these brands too. People go to see the Champagne region in France because of the great wines produced there. Yeah, so there's huge economic benefits to collaring and restricting the use of those names to those specific countries. First of all, the the well-known name, it attracts high sales, it attracts premium prices. And then you, you, you're quite right, Richard. It also has big regional economic benefits and things like food tourism and, mm. and tourism in general. What has been our counter-argument? When we're talking to the Europeans, or when we have been, because currently these negotiations have stalled a bit, 
What have we been saying back to them about why we should be able to have Australian-produced feta and Prosecco and the like? We can guess what they're saying, and, and it's the fact that lots of our producers have cultural heritage claims, and really they don't want to change. And also the, the cost and the challenge for our Australian producers having to come up with new names for products that they've been selling for decades. If, Stephen, we do accept the EU's position, what would be in it for us? It's the free trade agreement. It's basically economics 101. You don't have the trade tariffs and those 27 countries in in Europe open up to our producers. It's not far off 450 million people. And also they have pretty high gross domestic product, those countries. So there's there's huge spending power. So it, it opens up the markets. I think you've also got to think of what happens if we don't, what opportunity is lost. You know, recently, the last the last few weeks or so, New Zealand's have signed up to the free trade agreement where they're agreeing to these name regulations. If we don't jump on board, we're in danger of losing out. And, th- and that losing out could be pretty significant. It occurs to me that part of the issue for us in saying yes to this would be that there will be winners and losers in Australia. So, for example, perhaps our beef farmers would get better access to that massive market, 445 million people, GDP of about something like 24 trillion, worth getting access to that market. But the people who currently make and brand what they make as feta and Prosecco, they have to go back to the drawing board with that. I don't think anybody is saying it's it's going to be easy, but in marketing terms, rebranding your products and product names is not anything particularly unusual. There's a recognized process that Mm. you follow in order to rebrand something. Now, obviously, lots of our smaller producers are going to be very concerned at that, and they're going to need some support in how they go about that and how they develop their new brand names effectively. Wouldn't it be in our own long-term best interests to develop an Australian list of geographic indicators which evoke Australia but tell you something about what you're going to get. Absolutely, Richard. Australia already has very good reputation internationally for things like its product quality and the standards of production and farming across the states. So we've got a very positive thing to build on already. Also, we've got very strong connections with the um, European market. So there's a very strong starting point for us. But what we really need to do is to further develop our Australian kind of unique brand values. And you're quite right, in the long run, if we can do that effectively, that will, not just for meat, but the whole range of products and produce that are produced by Australian producers, it it will help them Mm. to sell internationally as well. Tell us about your own research, Steve, on on developing a a Northern Territory brand for some food products. That was looking at the feasibility of setting up some large-scale food processing facilities in the Northern Territory. Currently, there's no large-scale production in the Northern Territory. And what, what that means for our local producers, whether it's seafood, beef industry, or produce, is they're relying on the commodity markets 
the global food prices, which fluctuate dramatically at certain times, and that creates instability in the economy and, of course, for these producers. And what's very clear is if you're a, an Australian producer, it's going to cost us potentially a lot more than other countries purely because of the physical distance to get our products to the international markets. So you've got to come up with some unique selling points. You have to be able to charge a premium. Quite right. And what it means is lots of our producers in the Northern Territory and other parts of Australia, if they're not value adding and actually processing the, the food, they're in that commodity market. So what we were looking at Charles Darwin University in this project was what are some of the unique selling points that appeal in these international markets? So you mentioned beef al already. Well, the majority of NT, Northern Territory beef, it's pasture fed, it's free range. It's also free range on the unspoilt soils and environment in the Northern Territory. Now, those characteristics are in very high demand, not just in Australia, but globally, provided you can attach those premium value recognition to the NT beef, then it means that you can charge that price premium. And that's equally true of produce. You know, if you think of the tropical fruit from the NT, we've probably got some of the highest quality, best tasting mangoes in the world. Mm. Again, price premium. Yeah, the seafood as well. You know, it's pristine waters, predominantly wild caught. Barramundi, I mean, it's called, I think, Asian sea bass in other parts of the world, but our barramundi is in very high demand globally. I tell you what, we've also got Australian superfoods, the bush foods as well, like kakadu plum, wild harvest, strong connections to the First Nations community. Again, these are huge selling points that consumers will pay a premium for. So are you saying, Steve, we should bite the bullet with the EU, accept what they're saying, and just work hard to develop brands like Kakadu Plum? The plain truth is these geographical indication names are not going to go away. The longer we're not part of the EU, the less competitive we're going to be in those markets. So I suppose we've got to say, you know, do we want a ticket to the party or not? If we do, then we've got to look at how we can change. But we've really got to understand what our unique selling points are, what the Australian brand values are, and that will hopefully maximise the um, success and opportunities in the long run. Steve Greenlands, Professor of Marketing at Charles Darwin University. To finance now, and the Australian dollar kept sliding today, and the yes, local share market today. joined it. The All Lords and the ASX 200 index down around 0.7 of a percent each at the moment. Suffering its heaviest fall in weeks. US stocks were mixed, with the Dow Jones rising modestly, the S&P and the Nasdaq losing ground. It's very familiar, isn't it? The sound of financial news, stock market moves, currency fluctuations. But these sorts of indicators aren't particularly useful to most people. And that's something Vanessa Williamson from the Brookings Institution is keen to underline. She says that in her country, the USA, there's much more relevant information that could be conveyed. I think most Americans would be able to tell you what you typically hear about the economy. Stock prices closed up today, you know, five points, this sort of a thing. And they think they're being informed about what's happening in this country in terms of the economy, but that's just not true because the reality is stock market indices are 
just not a very good indicator of how the economy is doing for regular people. There's sort of random wobble <laughs> occurring all the time in the stock market. It's not particularly informative to anyone. And anyone who's busily day trading is getting far more up to the second information than what you hear on the radio or the television. Yet we report this information all the time. Not only is it a lot of information that doesn't have a ton of content, it's also extremely slanted because at the end of the day, the people who have money in the stock market are far better off than most Americans. It's not really doing a service in terms of letting Americans know what the economy is like for most people. Before we go any further, I'm sure that some, some people listening now are going, well, hang on. If Americans have pension plans, don't they have a kind of connection with the stock market? Sure. Some Americans do have pension plans. That's absolutely right. But it's not most Americans. And if you have a pension plan, most people aren't actually managing those stocks. And most people aren't going to draw on the money until they reach retirement age. So the sort of day-to-day -day information you receive is not anything that anyone is going to respond to. So it's really information that has very little bearing on the lived experience of most people. Given the economic times we've been in, and it has been a roller coaster since the pandemic, but you would surely have had coverage of inflation, which of course has been very problematic. You'd have had coverage of employment. And these are issues that affect ordinary Americans. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And those sorts of facts are at least a little bit more relevant to the average American, although it's hard to think about what they you know, should be doing differently. But it's, it's absolutely important to present those broad statistics. But it's not daily coverage, right? So we get employment figures quarterly. Mm. You know, you get inflation figures on occasion throughout the year. But there's not this absolutely monotonous day-to-day -day information that you get about those kinds of statistics, which are indeed significant. Part of the reason for the reporting on the on stock exchanges or, or currency prices, and I, I speak as a journalist who's been in the media a long time, is that they're easy to do. They're numbers that you can grab and present to people. But you're concerned that something else is going on as well. That's right. So, you know, when we think about what can be covered, it has to be the stuff that's news, right? So it has to be what's new. And of course, there's something that's always new in the stock market with currency prices, that kind of thing. So it's absolutely understandable that journalists use what's at hand. But there's a more fundamental problem, I think, which is that there's serious class bias in how journalists, how the media presents the economy. It's far more common for journalists to depict this kind of problems that are facing corporations, that are facing big business, that are facing investors, rather than the kinds of problems that are facing the general workforce. And after, I mean, this really gets to the core of what the media is for, right? I mean, what we want is for citizens to be able to make informed decisions mm. about the kinds of policies their politicians are choosing. And mm. so if we are systematically misrepresenting the state of the economy, which again and again, for decades has been the top issue for most Americans, right? If we're systematically misrepresenting that issue, we're systematically misinforming citizens who are then going to be obliged to make choices without the full scope of information they should be using. So, okay, what are Americans missing out on? What coverage would you like to see? One thing that's I think starting to address that problem that you brought up before about what data is available, right? Stock market information, always available. Well, there's important information that hasn't really been available about economic inequality, for example. You know, 20 years ago, we didn't even really know what was going on with the top 1%, top 0.1% of the economy, because, you know, there are not many, very many of those people. They don't tend to answer surveys. We didn't have the kind of robust data that we have now, right? Because we use tax data to sort of assess what's going on at the top of the economy. So, 
there's already been immense improvement in the knowledge base available in terms of thinking about inequality, but there have been real steps forward even more recently, right? So now we're beginning to be able to do estimates of changes in inequality on a much more rapid basis, quarterly, even monthly. Just as an example, Earlier this year, in a one-month period, and it wasn't a particularly unusual month, the richest 25,000 American households saw their wealth grow by $10 million apiece. That is a lot of money. Yes. The bottom 50% of households during that same period saw their wealth increase by $200. This is an enormous divergence, and it's quite shocking. You know, one of the things that's hard about inequality is that the scope of it is easy to forget. So I think that's one of the things that would be really valuable about seeing more reporting on the level of inequality so that people get more of a sense. You know, their survey after survey demonstrates that Americans typically underestimate the level of wealth inequality, the level of income inequality in this country by factors of 10 or more. So... Getting these kind of data in front of people might actually shape their understanding of the country in which they live. Where's that information coming from? How do you stand that stuff up? Well, there's a lot of really neat sources out there. I'll mention two. One is a very cool site called Real-Time Inequality, and this is from some professors at UC Berkeley, and they provide monthly statistics and even daily statistics about uh, income and wealth inequality. And there you know, there are little buttons you can toggle and you can make the graphs change so you can get exactly the statistic you are personally interested in. Uh, and then at the same time, the St. Louis Fed, the Federal Reserve in St. Louis, is doing a bunch of new work on wealth inequality. And that stuff is really neat because it drills down into racial inequality, which is, of course, an enormous problem in the United States, and also educational wealth inequality. How much is the news media discovering these sources and getting this stuff out there? More and more, I'm doing my bit, I think, to try and encourage it. Yeah, it's something that would take a bit of a change of culture to some degree, right? To, to move people away from presenting the kind of statistics that can you know, quite accidentally be misleading. You know, when I talk about class bias in the media, I'm not talking about reporters only wanting to talk about wealthy people as individuals. It's not that kind of individual level bias. The bias is really in the data, right? Mm. So if you present information about, for example, changes in the gross domestic product, you might think this is going to be a nice summary of the overall state of the economy. But the problem is when society is very unequal, all of those gains, or nearly all of those gains, are going to the very top. So changes in GDP are really telling you about what's happening for very rich people, as opposed to, you know, we could imagine, and it has been true in the United States in the past, that changes in GDP would correlate much more closely with how most people are doing. So I think there's a real opportunity here for journalists to do work that is interesting, that fits in with the kind of the sort of mission that most journalists see they have, and also, you know, present something that's new and different and would, you know, draw people in a little more than the same old statistics about the NASDAQ. But it's got to be widely disseminated, doesn't it? It's not enough. If this goes into, you know, Vox.com or The Atlantic, it's got to be in US News and World Report. Yeah, I mean, it has to be all over the place. I mean, it would be really wonderful to see this kind of information presented when you turn on the car radio, right? That's where a lot yeah. of Americans get their news. They get weather and they get a little blurb of news, uh, you know, between, you know, with sports. And, you know, it would be just really wonderful to see a much more informative form of data fit in there. I wonder, though, what kind of effect this reporting would have, because... When you hit me with those numbers about the growth in wealth of the very top over, you know, one month compared to what happened in the lowest 50%, that's actually extremely confronting. And I I wonder if people actually want to know that it's that bad. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's an open question. You you can ask yourself what kind of news gets the clicks and that kind of thing. Obviously, that's a, an issue of you know, real significance for media that are you know trying to pay the bills. But at the same time, I think that you know most people get into journalism because they want to do something that matters. And you know, I think that this data is a cool opportunity. I can't imagine that it's less interesting to hear about inequality than it is to hear about the S and P or the you know Dow Jones. You know, it might actually be something that provokes greater attention than the sort of standard formulaic stuff that you tend to hear. So perhaps a, a kind of virtuous feedback where if you present this stuff, more people engage with it, which I think all of the news media would like. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean, you know, you're going to solve every problem overnight with that kind of thing, right? There's a lot of critical issues that receive plenty of coverage. And our political system here really struggles to turn public opinion into public policy. I don't think we can solve that one right now. But uh, this is a very interesting idea, Vanessa. Thank you very much for explaining it to us on The Money. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Vanessa Williamson is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. And that's it for now. The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Ian Coon. I'm Richard Aidey. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 